Good afternoon, church. Uh, today's scripture will be read from Luke 24, verse 13 to 32. I invite you all to stand on your feet as we honor the word together on the count of three. One, two, three. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we were that we to redeem Rizero. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You guys may be seated. Happy Passover. Um, it's nice to see you guys. Uh, some of you, uh, I think this is the first time I see your faces in a while, and some of you is a brand new faces. Now, the interesting thing about our church is if you uh, come to this church for the first time and you try to figure out, you know, try to get the feel what kind of church is this, you'll be confused, right? Because some of us, like me and Kim, we like, you know, when we present worship, some of us like this, you know, and then we sing hymns and then there's liturgy, you know, what, what is this church, okay? Welcome to Orc City International. Like, to the point that I asked Sarah, right, my sermon today, I titled it, um, Heart on Fire. I asked Sarah, Sarah. Can we sing Church on Fire? Okay, if you guys grew up in my days, you know that song, like, this is a church on... Okay, never mind. But she said no, okay? So this is the kind of church that the worship leader can say no to the pastor. <laughs> All right. Let me start. What is the greatest pain you have ever experienced? Now, I consider myself someone who's good at dealing with pain. For example, last year... Uh, I took out one of my wisdom, wisdom teeth. And they say that at modern de dentistry, especially in a country like Australia, 
is almost always a pain-free experience. Note the, mo- the word almost always, because it does not mean always. That's an exception to it. And I was at the end of that exception. Okay, so my dentist told me, don't worry, it will be painless. Let me tell you, dentist lied. It was extremely painful. Like I shed a few tears during the surgery. But I didn't say anything because I'm a man, so I just endured the pain, right? See, I'm, I think I'm, I consider myself good at dealing with physical pain. But there's one kind of pain that I can't handle. It's the kind of pain that makes me sleepless, lifeless, and energyless. Now, you guys know what kind of pain I'm talking about? Okay, I know some of you are thinking, the pain of a broken heart. Yes, but no. I do realize when I look at some of your faces, you have no idea what the pain of broken heart is. Don't worry, your turn is coming. But for those who have a heart been broken, let me ask you a question. Do you know why it is so hard for us to deal with this pain? Because of a broken hope. Okay? And this is how the book of Proverbs put it. Okay? The book of Proverbs, just 13 to 12, says this. Hope defer make the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So if we experience a broken heart, but we still have hope in the relationship, we'll be okay. Am I right? But what destroys us is when we no longer have hope in that relationship. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what a lot of time happens in our Christian walk is that things turn out a certain way that we do not expect. So we expected God to do something A, and we put our hope in it, but then nothing happened. Things did not turn out the way expected, and we are disappointed with God. Especially when what we hope for is a good thing. Like as a Christian, we believe that God is all good, right? We believe that God is all good, all loving, all wise, all powerful, He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, wherever He wants. Nothing is impossible for God. So that leaves us a question, if that's true, why didn't He come through for me? You know what I'm talking about? And if what we hoped for was a new Ferrari while we drive a Honda Jazz, you know, we can kind of understand why God says no, right? Like, okay, I get it, why God says no to my prayer. But a lot of time, what we hope for is actually a good thing, not a selfish thing. We hope for our family to be restored, for our child to come to know Christ, for our parents to be healed, for our PR to be granted, for promotion at work, for the relationship to work out. But then what happened is the opposite. Our parents are divorced. Our boyfriend or girlfriend cheated on us. Our family members still sick. Our PR application got rejected. Our child refuses to know Christ, and we get laid off from our job. And we find ourselves wondering this question, really, what went wrong? Have you ever asked that question? Because I thought, hold on a second, does God care about me? Because if, that, if He does care, then why? Why does things turn out this way? It's not supposed to be this way. It's not that we stop believing in God. No, we believe in God. But our experience contradicts what we believe about God. 
And because of that, here's what happened. Hope defer, make the heart sick to the point that finally you just get so discouraged. It seems like life has no purpose and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And if that's you, I have good news for you. Life does have meaning and that meaning is found in Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we always have hope in all circumstances. Now, tonight's passage is about two people who have lost hope because of the death of Jesus, okay? So we do not know exactly who they are. We know one of them is called Cleopas, but we have no idea who the other person is. Many people assume that this is actually husband and wife, and they're actually Jesus' uncle and aunt, but we do not know for sure. But one thing we know for sure is they are followers of Jesus. And Jesus' death does not make any sense to them. Because why? Because they have big hope and expectation of Jesus. But then his death killed those hope and expectation. So now they're very sad, they're very discouraged, they're brokenhearted. And in this passage, we find them making an 11-kilometer walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And I googled, because, you know, that's the kind of person I am. How long does it take to walk 11 kilometers? And Google tells me the answer. If you're fit, 90 minutes. If you're not fit, more than two hours, okay? Most of us, most likely, in the more than two hours part. I don't know. I'm assuming. So this is like, let's say, two hours conversation between these two persons, and then suddenly a stranger come up and start to talk with them. And these two hours conversation changes everything. Because this is what we found. At the end of these two hours conversation, their hearts are no longer burdened, but their hearts are burning. To which we need to ask, well, what happened? Okay, let's look at the story together. I have three points for my sermon. The disappointment, the gospel, and the fire. Let's look at the first one, the disappointment. Verse 13 to 20. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Amos, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So let me give you the context first. So the story happened on the very same day of Jesus' resurrection. So earlier that day, some woman went up to the tomb and discovered the tomb was empty. And then they saw an angel who told them that Jesus rose from the dead. So the woman then came back and told the other disciple about it, but here's what happened. The disciple did not believe the woman. So if you find Jesus' resurrection hard to believe, let me tell you good news. You are not alone. Even the disciple who spent three years with Jesus and saw all the mighty signs and wonders that Jesus performed, they found resurrection hard to believe. So now, on their way to Emmaus, Cleopas and this other guy, person, are talking about everything that has happened in the last few days. So they're talking about how Jesus was crucified, how he was buried, and now the tomb is empty. And they don't know what to make sense of all these things that have happened to Jesus. They're confused. 
So what we found here is two persons in a conversation, and these two persons have their hopes dead and buried. And in the middle of the conversation, suddenly someone comes in and jumps in into the conversation. Now, in our cultural context, people who do that are either crazy or rude. In our church context, he's your pastor. Because I realize that I do that a lot after the service, right? I just awkwardly jump in the conversation, say hi, then awkwardly walk away, okay? That's what I do. I'm introvert, sorry. But at a time and place where people have to walk to a lot of places, it's not unusual for someone to join in conversation as they walk the same road. And Luke tells us this person is none other than Jesus. So Jesus come up to them and say, hey guys, you guys are in a very deep, serious conversation. What are you guys talking about? And Cleopas replied, are you like the only person in Jerusalem who does not know what happened in the last few days? I mean, everyone been talking about it. BBC and Nine News covered the story. You can read it in Jerusalem Morning Herald. People been raving about it in Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Where have you been, bro? And Jesus said, well, what things? Tell me about it. And they said, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, at least you have heard of him, right? See, here's what happened. We are actually Jesus' followers. So we have been following him for the last three years, and we listened to all his sermons. And let me tell you, his sermons were great. See, unlike those scribes, when they preach, we fall asleep. When Jesus preached, we feel alive. Because he spoke with power and authority that we have never seen before. And let me tell you about his miracles. His miracles were amazing. Because there's one time he met a leper, and we were like, oh, 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 he wouldn't touch that leper, right? He wouldn't dare. Wait, did he just? So Jesus touched a leper, and instead of the leper becoming unclean, I mean, instead of him becoming unclean, the leper become clean. That had never happened before. And there was a time when Jesus fell asleep on the boat and the storm threatened to destroy the boat. But do you know what Jesus did? He woke up and he told the storm, be quiet. And the wind and the wave immediately obey him. And we were like, OMG, who is this guy? Now, if you're wondering, you will not find that word in the Bible. Okay, this is Yossi's standard version. Okay, this is not ESP. So they were talking about Jesus, and it's like, there's one more time. There's one time that where Jesus fed 15,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. He was a prophet mighty indeed before God and before all the people. But here's the problem. The Sanhedrin hated him. So they condemned him to death, and they crucified him. Now, do you see the irony in all of this? They're telling Jesus about Jesus. And they accuse Jesus of not knowing what's been happening while Jesus is the only one who truly knows what's been happening. So they're talking to Jesus about Jesus, but they do not know that they're talking to Jesus. But here's where I want to draw your attention. Why could they not recognize Jesus? I mean, what prevents them from seeing Jesus? Is that because of their unbelief in the resurrection? Is that because they did not expect to see Jesus again? Or is that because of their overwhelmed with grief? Look at what Luke says in verse 16. It's very interesting. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Notice, Luke does not say they do not recognize Jesus. Luke said they are kept from recognizing Jesus. And I think Luke is making a very important point. Here's the point, don't miss it. No one can see the reason Jesus unless he wills to reveal himself. So it means, listen, you might grow in church and listen to all the story of Jesus ever since you were born. Even some of you in your mother's womb, your mom's and dad's story praying for you, tell you, read you the Bible story, right? And yet, it's very possible for you to grow up in church and listen to all the story of Jesus and serve in every ministry and yet still do not recognize Jesus. Because recognizing Jesus is not a matter of self-will. So let me tell you something about you. If you say today that you recognize Jesus and you love Jesus, let me tell you what happened. God, open your eyes to see who Jesus is. It's not you. But look at what they say about Jesus. They call Jesus a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. So they have a really high fear of Jesus. Can we agree? But not high enough. They're not wrong, but they're not right either. Because Jesus is more than a prophet. He's God in flesh. So they have the right information, but they only have, only have half the revelation. And look at what they say next, verse 21 to 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Now, pay attention. Underline, if you have your Bible, underline that phrase in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Let me tell you, this is the problem. So they have spent the last three years following Jesus and supporting Jesus. And they hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. So when Jesus died, all hope went down the drain. Because they think, well, how can Jesus redeem Israel if he died? Now, can you see what happened? The reason why they're sad and discouraged is because they thought Jesus would do A, but B happened. And they cannot make sense of it. See, they're at the point where all their hope and expectation are killed and disappointed. And because of it, because of it, they cannot receive good news. So when the woman told them about the resurrection of Jesus, they cannot hear it. It's like, you know, they have this filter in their mind that interprets everything as bad news. Let me put it this way. They're like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. Okay? You remember the story? When Piglet cheerfully say, good morning, Eeyore reply, well, I suppose it is for some. Have you ever met Eeyore? Because if you haven't, let me tell you, most likely you are one. <laughs> Life hits you in the face, and it seems like all hope is lost, right? It seems like now your situation is beyond any earthly hope, 
And you are like these two disciples who think that Jesus as his dad as he could be. And you might be in church today, that's a problem. But you feel hopeless. You feel like your situation are without hope. But I am here to tell you that you are not without hope. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus did happen. And His resurrection changes everything. So if you're a Christian and you feel hopeless, let me tell you your problem. You know what your problem is? Your problem is your gospel is not complete. You remove resurrection from your gospel. And I love the way Michael Ramsey put it. The gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It is not a gospel at all. See, this is the reason why Cleopas and his friend are discouraged because they do not know that Jesus is alive. And there is no good news unless Jesus rose from the dead. But let me speak to my non-Christian friends in this room. See, whenever we Christians talk about resurrection, I know what's coming to your mind, right? You immediately think, well, come on, man, guys, how can you believe in a resurrection in this day and age? I mean, ancient people might believe it, but come on. Today we have science, and science has told us that resurrection cannot happen. But is it? Because even if you deny and you do not believe the resurrection of Jesus, you still have to explain the empty tomb. Because historian noted, it is undeniable that Jesus' tomb was empty. So if you say to me, I don't believe in a resurrection, that's fine, but here's my question. What are you going to do with the empty tomb? Now, I'm not saying that the empty tomb is the proof once and for all that resurrection is true. I'm not saying that. But the empty tomb is the irrefutable evidence. And it shows us the most likely explanation that the resurrection of Jesus did happen. So you can't just say, resurrection can't happen, therefore it did not happen. That's intellectual laziness. You must examine the evidence. And if you reject the resurrection of Jesus, that's fine. But you must come out with another explanation that explains the empty tomb and also the transformation in the life of the disciple. Because the disciple did not believe in the resurrection as well at first. But then their life are radically transformed and changed. They are changed to the point that they are persecuted and killed for their belief in Jesus' resurrection. Here's my question. Do you have an explanation for that? I dare you to examine the evidence clearly. And you will conclude that there are good reasons why Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. But let's look at the second part, the gospel. Verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish one and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet hath spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer this thing and enter into his glory? So, in response to what they say, Jesus rebuked them. But note the reason why Jesus rebuked them. See, Jesus does not rebuke them for not believing the evidence of the resurrection. or he doesn't. Jesus does not rebuke them for not recognizing who he is. Like, if I was Jesus, that's what I would rebuke them for. I'd be like, guys, after all these years, you don't recognize me? How could you? 
But do you know why Jesus rebuked them? Jesus rebuked them for not believing and understanding the Scripture. See, what happened is they're not able to see how the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus come in one package. See, for them, suffering and glory, they do not hold hands. They cannot conceive that suffering and death are necessary means of divine redemption and eternal hope. They see the death of Jesus as the end of their hope. They do not realize that the death of Jesus is the answer to their hope. See, in their mind, suffering Messiah is contradiction. It's like what my friend said yesterday when we hit uh, Max Brenner. It's like salty chocolate. They embrace the glorious Messiah, but not the suffering Messiah. And before we blame them for being shallow, let me tell you, we do the same mistake all the time. See, we have this propensity to only focus on one side of the coin, right? I mean, we love to talk about the glorious Jesus, don't we? We like to sing, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. Come on, guys, you guys know the next one, right? That is who you are. We love that. Like, oh my gosh, this is it. He is one. But we do not sing, follow me, carry the cross, deny yourself, obey his word. My God, that is your demand. We don't sing that. Why? First of all, because that song doesn't exist. Second, because we do not understand our main problem. See, think about it. Cleopas won redemption. He had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. But he thinks redemption that he needs is the redemption from the slavery of Romans. So what he thinks is this, what we need is salvation from the Romans. If we could just have economic freedom, it could, we could just have political freedom, then everything would be all right. In other words, Cleopas thinks that the main problem in his life is bad circumstances. And what he needs is for Jesus to make his circumstances better. If only Jesus changed his circumstances, then everything will be fine. And that is exactly the way we often think. We think what we need is better circumstances. We think what we need is for God to give us a better life. But then Jesus comes into the scene and says, no, no, no. I come to release you from a far deeper problem than that. Because the Bible teaches us that our main problem is we are slaves of sin. And Jesus came to redeem us from the slavery of sin. Well, the question is, do we know that we are enslaved by sin? Now, let me backtrack one more step. How do we become a slave of something? Think about it. How do we become a slave of something? Think of addiction. How do we become addicted to something? Let's say you're addicted to porn. How did it happen? It starts when you have emptiness in your life and you need a high. So you look at porn. And for a while, it helps, right? But the next thing you know, there's this thing called a tolerance factor. Have you heard about it? It means that after a while, the same amount that you once took to give you that high, to deal with that emptiness, is no longer sufficient. 
So now you need to get more doses to get the same high that you have before. So what ends up happening is you start consuming more and more porn to get you to that high. And before you know it, the very thing that is relieving stress begins to cause stress. See, at first, you look at porn to relieve stress, right? But now porn itself is a stress. And when the thing you, are, you use to relieve stress is the cause of your stress, you are stuck in the vicious cycle. You are spiraling down and you're going to crash. And by that time, you are already enslaved by porn. And you are trapped in that cycle. And all sin is a form of addiction. Because sin is whatever we run to beside God to fill that inner emptiness, to give us that high. See, it could be our spouse, could be our job, could be our relationship, could be marriage, could be anything. Whatever it is, is what happened. At first, we run to it to fill that longing in our heart, to fill that emptiness in our heart. And that works for a little bit. But as time goes by, we need more and more and more of it. And if we don't have it, or if anything threatens it, we feel like we're suffocated. And at that point, we have become slave to that very thing. Now, can you see it? And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem us from the slavery of sin. See, most of us, we start our Christian journey like Cleopas. We think what we need is a change of circumstances, right? So for some of you, maybe the reason that you start to come to church is because you are brokenhearted, right? Because you, you try to find hope, and now you, you start to hang out with new people, and the new people bring you to church. Or maybe some of you start coming to church because you don't, know, you don't want to flunk out of your business school. So what we are saying when we come to church, Jesus, Jesus, help me. Oh, Jesus, help me. I really need your help so that I can get through this business school so that I can have a good career. So we come to God as a sufferer needing help, but not as a sinner needing salvation. What we want is God to change our circumstances, but not our heart. But what we really need is a change of heart. Because according to Jesus, we are enslaved. But instead of coming to God saying, God, you know, I want you to become the most important to me. I want you to be the number one for me. I want you to be the only one that matters. We come to God, 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 God. I need, I need this work, business school to work out. And we not realize that we've been enslaved by that. See, if we only focus on our circumstances, we are making the same mistake as Cleopas. We want to understand why Jesus has to die on the cross. Because listen, until we see our main problem, unless we see what Jesus came to do, we are going to be disappointed in God. Let me repeat that. Unless we see our main problem in life, unless we see what Jesus came to do, we are going to be disappointed in God. Because we don't realize that the only way for us to be freed from our sin is for Jesus to die for our sin. He must suffer and die for our sin. And the problem with many of our disappointment is not that we do not believe. No, no. The problem is we do not believe rightly. We only see one side of the coin. And this is why Jesus rebuked Cleopas. And maybe this is why Jesus needs to rebuke us. And then comes one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. 
okay? If you've been in this church for a while, you know this verse. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. If there is a time machine and I can go back and witness what happened in the Bible for myself, this is one of the first places that I would go to. Because this is the most epic Bible study of all time, where the Word of God incarnate explained the Word of God written. And in this one verse, Jesus gives us, listen, He gives us the key to unlocking everything we read in the Bible. And Jesus presents himself as the key to interpreting the Bible and the fulfillment of the Bible. I love the way Philip Ryken put it. He put it beautifully. He says this, On every page, his coming is prophesied. His life is prefigured. His suffering are personified. Or his resurrection life is promised. The Old Testament has one central theme, and that theme is Christ. Everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. So what Jesus does to the disciples is Jesus is explaining Jesus from the Bible. So listen, if we read the Bible and we miss Jesus, then we have misread the Bible. The problem is not the Bible. The Bible has not failed us. The problem is we are not reading the Bible rightly. Let me put it down into our daily habits. Okay, what does it mean for us then? Okay, there are two ways to read the Bible. There's a moralistic way and there's a gospel-centered way. We can either read the Bible and make it all about us or we can read the Bible and make it all about Jesus. Okay, let me give you two examples. First one, the story of David and Goliath. Okay, I'm pretty sure most of us know this story. So the little David trusts in God and defeats the big Goliath. The moral of the story is that if we put our faith in God, we can overcome a Goliath. So the question is, what are a Goliath? It might be exams. It might be business struggles, sickness, singleness, or it might be in-law. I heard in-law are scarier than Goliath. That's what I heard. So the Bible then becomes an inspirational story that motivates us to do better. And yes, it will inspire us for a while. But what happens when we trust God and our Goliath are not going anywhere? What happens when we trust God and our in-laws are still as knowing as ever? We will be crushed. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Because what happened when we read the Bible, we make the Bible all about us. That's why we're disappointed. But then here comes Jesus and says, no, 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 no. Everything in the Bible is about me. See, David, he's a good example. Yes, but David is about me. I am the true and better David. Can you see it? See, when David fights Goliath, he fights to represent the people of Israel. If David loses Israel loses. If David wins, Israel wins. If David receives glory, Israel receives glory. David's victory is Israel's victory. 
And Jesus saying, David represents him, Jesus. And Goliath represents the enemy that we cannot defeat on our own, sin. And Jesus came and defeats sin on our behalf. And his victory is our victory. And when we receive Jesus' victory, we are empowered to fight our Goliaths. David points to Jesus. Let me give another example, okay? Right now, in our daily Bible reading plan, we are in the book of Leviticus. Now, let's be honest. This is where most of us give up on our daily Bible reading plan. Because reading Leviticus is not easy. So far, I have only known one person, she's anomaly, who enjoys reading Leviticus. And she asked me the question last week, are you going to do a sermon series on the book of Leviticus? And in my mind, I was like, girl, who does that? I don't know any church that does a series on Leviticus, unless that church tried to cut the attendance by half, right? Because the reading the book of Leviticus makes us wonder, I mean, what is the point of all these sacrifices? I mean, what's the point of all this strange law? I mean, do you realize there's so many strange laws in the book of Leviticus? Let me give you just two of them. Number one, first, we were not allowed to wear clothes made of both linen and wool. I'm out already. <laughs> Second, we were not allowed to sit in the same spot a woman sat when she was on her period. Because a woman on her period was thought to be unclean. Looking at the stain on the chair you're sitting right now, all of you are out. Some of you are like, oh, really? This is stain in my chair? So when we read the book of Leviticus and we make it all about us, we will struggle. But if we understand the book of Leviticus is about Jesus, then it's different. Because we start to see now, hold on a second, that all this sacrificial system, all this regulation, all this cleansing law are pointing to the fact that God is holy. And because God is holy, He wants His people to be holy. But He knows that His people is not holy. But God loves His unholy people so much that He provides a way for the holy God to be amid unholy people. And those sacrifices and law, they are pointing to one perfect sacrifice who will make the final atonement for God's people. And that final perfect sacrifice is Jesus Christ. So now reading Leviticus, the effect on us should be, oh my gosh, look at all these things that I have to do. No, no, no. Reading Leviticus will make us say, look at how much God has done for me. So now when we read the Bible, everything is about Jesus. The law is about Jesus and how He fulfilled it. The temple is about Jesus and how He is the temple that dwells among the people. He is the hero behind all heroes. He is the prophet behind all prophets. He is the priest behind all priests. He is the king behind all kings. Or in the words of Jesus, storybook, Bible. Parents, you know this. What does it say? Every story whisper His name. And maybe the reason we're disappointed in God is that we have made the Bible all about us. We are disappointed in God for not keeping promises that He never made in the first place. We hope that God will do A, but He never promised to do A. And Jesus has to correct Cleopas and his friend's misunderstanding of the Bible. And perhaps 
most of us need to be corrected as well. Because as long as we still make the Bible all about us, we will continue to be disappointed. Because the Bible is written for us, but it is not about us. The Bible from beginning to the end is about Jesus. And look at what happens next. The fire. Verse 28 to 31. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from the side. So it's what happened. Cleopas and his friend, they can't put it into words. But they know something is different about this person. They don't know who Jesus is at this time, but they know they do not want to be without him. So they urge him to remain with them, and Jesus complies. So Jesus comes and stays with them. And during dinner, Jesus is given the honor to bless and break the bread. And when he does, something supernatural happens. Suddenly, Cleopas and his friends suddenly, wait, 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 hold on a second. I know this guy. I know this person. This is Jesus. This is my teacher. He's sitting next to me, blessing the food and breaking the bread. He is alive. He's not dead. And that very moment, the moment they realize, poof, Jesus vanished from their side. And note carefully, if before they were kept from recognizing Jesus, this time their eyes were opened to recognize Jesus. It is God who did both the keeping and the opening of eyes. But I want you to see the result of it, okay? The result of it is verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? If before their hearts were burdened, now their hearts are on fire. They said to one another, did you, feel, did you feel what I felt? I mean, when he explained the Bible, my heart was on fire. And the other person, you too? Me too. My heart's like, woo, woo. I don't know how to explain it, but I know fire was burning in my head and I could not figure out why. But I did not want him to stop talking. I want him to tell me more and more about the Bible, and now I feel alive. I feel hopeful. Everything began to make sense. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus, and he must die. He must die for our sin. But he did not remain dead. He is alive. And we just had the best Bible study with him. Do you see what happened? One moment, a burdened heart. Now, a burning heart. Question. How did a burdened heart become a burning heart? Two things, and I'm done. First, through the opening of scriptures. See, their hearts are on fire because Jesus opened the scriptures to them. And the way Jesus opened the scriptures is very specific. Jesus not only opened the scriptures, no, no. He showed them 
how everything in the Scripture is pointing to Jesus. He showed them that the gospel, the story of the gospel, is the focus of the Bible. And it is only when we see what Jesus has done for us in the Bible that we finally see Jesus. See, it is seeing and experiencing what Jesus has done for us through the pages of the Bible that turn icy cold hearts into hearts on fire. Do you want your heart to burn for God? Do you want your heart to be yearning and be passionate for God? Here's what you need to do. Expose yourself to the proclamation of the gospel. Because the gospel is the key to burning heart. See, as the gospel is proclaimed, here's what happened. Your heart, my heart are burning with the fire of God. Okay? And let me testify with you from my own story. I've experienced this again and again and again. You know, just because I'm a pastor, a lot of people assume that I'm always on fire for God. A lot of people assume because I'm a pastor, you know, oh, he's a pastor, okay, he'd be fine, he loved Jesus. But can I be honest with you? There are days, Sundays, I woke up, I did not want to go to church, and I'm a pastor. There are days I woke up in the morning, I did not want to come to church, and I did not want to preach. Is it too much for you guys for me to be honest like that? I'm like, ooh. It's true. I'm not lying. There are days that I'm just, my heart is so burdened because of the cares of this world or because I am, you know, I put my hope in something else that cannot sustain me. But I feel like my heart is just not there. I'm just not ready to preach. I don't even want to preach. I don't want to come to church. But it's what I did. As I opened the pages of the Bible, as I continued to immerse myself in the gospel, fire burning in my heart. And sometimes it does not work that way. Sometimes, even when I come to the States, okay, honestly, I still don't want to preach. But as I preach the gospel to you, as I proclaim what Jesus has done for you and me, in this pulpit, something's burning in my heart. I can't explain, but I know something is burning in my heart. I'm like, this is good. I'm preaching good, not because I'm good, but because the gospel is good. So it speaks to my own heart as I proclaim the gospel. So as we continue to do that, as we continue to see the beauty of Jesus in the pages of the Bible, here's what happened. A flame is kindled in our cold heart. You guys know what I'm talking about? I'm pretty sure some of you experience that. When you come to church, you are disappointed. You are heavy burdened. You have a lot of issues. You you're just not in it. But as you come to church, as you, lead, as you listen to the gospel liturgy, as you follow, and then as you listen to the gospel being proclaimed, you can't explain it, but you know that something's burning in your heart. And when you leave this place, you just know that your hearts are no longer cold. What happened? Not your see, not the gospel, not the worship leader, the gospel. Because Jesus revealed himself to you through his perfect sacrifice, to what he has done for you and me. And when we see that in the pages of the Bible, all our discouragement goes away because we see a beauty beyond all beauty. That's the first one. But second one, the second way it happened is this. Through the fellowship of the same. So the breaking of bread in this text is not referring to Holy Communion. It's not. It is referring to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, when we feel weary and disappointed in God, you know what feels natural? 
What feels natural is for us to withdraw and hide from our community. But what we need is the exact opposite. What we need is for our brothers and sisters in Christ to strengthen us and remind us of the gospel. Because here's what I know about times of disappointment. A lot of time, in this time of disappointment, it can be very hard, very hard for us to open the pages of the Bible and preach the gospel to ourselves. And that is why we need gospel-drenched community to preach the gospel to us. Can I use the word gospel-drenched intentionally? Because what we need is not simply a community to sympathize with us and encourage us. That's not wrong. That's good. But what we need is for community who know the gospel and can speak the gospel to us, can help us to see the beauty of Jesus that we are not seeing right now. So if you're struggling, if your heart is burdened, don't binge on Netflix. I know Netflix can give you that numbness for a little bit. It works for five minutes, for one hour, or three hours, or depend how long you binge. But the moment you finish, you feel empty again. But when you are, your heart is burdened, here's what you do. Open the Bible, expose yourself to the gospel. Let a gospel-drenched community speak the gospel into your life. And listen, I don't care what kind of situation you're facing right now. Bringing the gospel into your life and exposing yourself to a day in, day out, over a long period of time can change anything. doesn't matter what it is. The gospel can change anything because it is the power of God that turns a burdened heart into heart on fire. So I don't have any quick fix. If you come today with a burdened heart, I only have one answer for you. Look at the beauty of Jesus Christ who gave his life for you, sinner, so that you may have life. Be captivated by that. And that was burn your heart on fire. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you did not withhold your only son, but you gave him up for us so that we may have life. God, I don't know what kind of struggle that we are facing right now. I don't know what kind of burden that we carry in our heart when we come to this place. It might be financial struggle. It might be sickness. It might be a relationship issue. Whatever it is, we know that you are the answer. And when we see, when we see the beauty of your death, Jesus, at the cross, that's what satisfies us. That's what answers our longing. And that's what gives us strength to continue to trust you, hold on to you, and live out the life of faith. So today, Lord, as we celebrate your resurrection, I pray that we are reminded of what you have done for us. That resurrection is not just myth, but resurrection is true. And because of that, we can have hope today. Help us, Lord, to continue to gaze on you, Jesus. And I pray that as we continue that, may the burdened heart become heart on fire. And we ask this in the name of beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.